Let's keep worshiping Jesus together uh, by continuing our study in the Minor Prophets the day, or excuse me, the Sunday before Christmas. Now, if we were continuing our study, we'd actually be in the book of Haggai. And I want you to know that I am committed to verse-by-verse exposition as much as any individual in this room. But Haggai, if you've never read it, would be a tough transition uh, from uh, the temple being rebuilt to Christmas uh, theme. So we're still in the Minor Prophets. But I want to do something that I think benefits us based on the labor that we've already put into studying these books. I would like us today to go back to the book of Micah, chapter 5 in particular. And as opposed to this macro perspective of each book, I want you to see the fruit of diving into a particular text, specifically prophesying the coming of our Lord in Bethlehem. Micah, chapter 5 is where we'll be. We will pick up on Haggai when I return from seeing family at Christmas. If you need help with that, it's page 778 in the um, Bibles that are provided in the seat back in front of you. Micah 5, and let me read these famous verses, 1 through 6. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. I remember a few years ago being grossly offended uh, by a book that I was reading on Christian worship. Uh, The author is someone that uh, I think many of us would love and respect and probably read many of his books. Uh, But in his critique of modern evangelical worship, he actually excoriated a hymn that I grew up singing uh, that was sacrosanct. Like, he said that it was basically sentimental tripe, not worth singing, and I thought that it was one of the great hymns of the faith. 
You know how that is. If somebody critiques a song that you like or a movie that you like, that's why every time I mention a song or a movie here, somebody objects that I wasn't fair with their song or movie. So I know we all have personal thoughts on these things. And the particular song, though, that was, um, that was lambasted against at that time uh, was uh, this old, well, it's not even that old, but I thought it was old hymn called In the Garden. Did any of you know that? My, my granddad, who's with the Lord right now, would sing that song, like before Christmas, as a special in church. And then here this, this guy is saying that it's sentimental tripe. And if you think about the words of the song, it's, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still in the roses and the voice. I mean, like, I, you, know, if I'm, you know, I've had 15 years to reflect on this now. I'm like, ah, he, he may have been right. <laughs> uh, it's, is, it, is it sentimental or is it scriptural? I, all of us think that the, the worship music that we enjoy and that, and that we sing is, is the scriptural stuff and, and the, you know, the other stuff, it's just the modern stuff or the traditional stuff. But I think we need a, a better lens through which to analyze our own expressions of musical worship, especially at this time of year, because it's at this time of year that sentimentalism can run really high, causing us to ignore what the Scriptures may actually be saying or teaching, ignoring what the Scriptures may be leading us to celebrate. Uh, there are some songs that I have reevaluated in light of the lens of what's scriptural versus what's sentimental that I personally don't feel comfortable singing in corporate worship, even though I do. <laughs> and I won't tell you what those songs are because you're going to be angry with me. <laughs> but it is something worth noting. That particular book had led me to um, another that was pointed out to me by the same author a few years later, in which this guy is not a Christian, he critiqued evangelicalism. That would be people who claim to go to churches that preach the gospel. He critiqued evangelicalism. Uh, actually, he didn't critique it. He actually explained it to all of his scholarly non-Christian friends by saying, we thought of evangelicalism as something that holds to a certain truth. We thought of evangelicalism as an intellectual movement. But if we really, as scholars and as non-Christians, want to understand evangelicalism, we need to understand it as a sentimental religion, not an intellectual one. So, this guy, he's not a Christian, but he's saying on the basis of his research, looking at just the popularity of guys like uh, Joel Osteen, uh, Rick Warren, and Max Licato, he says, look, if you read that stuff, this is the mainstream in evangelicalism, and there's not substantive truth here. It's just sentimentality. So if you want to understand these guys, don't think of them as intellectuals. Think of them as people who just like that good old home feeling. And with that warning from a non-Christian in mind, because I know that that's not what Christ would have us found our faith on. <laughs> it is indeed a faith and not just feeling. We do well to sometimes subject some of our most basic songs of worship to the scrutiny of the Scriptures. One that I would like to pick on, not all of them, but one that I would like to analyze this morning would be the one that's actually in the next page on your worship guide, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, just open it up. Feel free to check it out. It's right after the, uh, the sermon notes. And indeed, we, oh, excuse me, it's right before the sermon notes. We put it in here. But is this sentimentality or is it Scripture? Notice the opening lines, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. 
Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Uh, it, it starts off with this nice kind of pastoral scene, and what's very interesting to me is the promise that it makes regarding Bethlehem at the very end. Go down uh, to like basically the bottom scores, the first line, where it says, um, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That is a huge statement. Think about it. Bethlehem, actually meeting, satisfying the hopes and fears of all the years? I mean, hopes, everything that anyone at any time has ever hoped is satisfied in what happened in Bethlehem? The fears, the things that people uh, want to avert at all cost, whether it be the separation of, of loved ones and death, whether it be uh, a lack of resources, whether it be physical suffering uh, medically, whatever it may be, all fears are met in thee tonight. It's a huge promise. And can it actually live up to the text? Does Bethlehem indeed provide for the hopes and fears of all the years? Micah would answer yes. What few people recognize about this particular prophecy in Micah chapter 5 is that it is not delivered at a high point in Israel's history. In fact, things had never been more threatening than they were at the very moment that Micah spoke these words. Look at verse 1, and you get a sense of the flavor of what was going on at the time. He says, now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With the rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, this is uh, Old Testament uh, prophecy at its finest. And, and what's being actually depicted here is the city of Jerusalem being surrounded by troops, Instead of calling her daughter Zion, he says, you're daughter of troops. You're characterized by armies all around you. And it says, siege is laid against us. Now, are you familiar with siege, with siege works, when an army would actually prevail upon a city and they would keep anything from going out, anything from going in? Basically, it was an attempt to starve out people from the inside. History records that when sieges typically took place, famine would inevitably happen within the city walls, leading some people and sometimes in places to even eat one another. It was a horrific scene. The year here presumably is about 701 B.C. History actually attests to the fact that it is at this point that the city of Jerusalem was indeed surrounded by the Assyrian army. In fact, when you look in ancient Near Eastern literature, there is particularly a passage that talks about uh, Jerusalem being surrounded, and it said that its uh, king was swallowed up like a bird in a cage. That's from an ancient Near Eastern text. That's not even this one. He's saying, you're surrounded, and this is what he prophesies, your ruler will be struck on the cheek with a rod. Now, uh, we don't see that much striking of the cheek these days, but you can imagine that in an ancient Near Eastern culture, for a ruler to be smacked across the face with anything is the ultimate in dishonor. He is actually saying, you're surrounded by troops, you're going to fall, you guys will be 
embarrassed. Now, Jerusalem would escape that attack in 701 B.C. God would inevitably, like, bring them out of that one, but about 70 years later, Babylon would come and do the same thing, and Israel's ruler would be struck. In fact, he wouldn't just be struck on the cheek. He would actually, this is kind of horrific thing to think about right before Christmas, but his children would be slaughtered in front of him, and then they would gouge his eyes out so that would be the last thing he ever saw. When you talk about the ultimate in shame, defeat, humiliation, this particular era in history for Israel isn't a high point. And yet it's in the middle of this kind of distress, hope low, fear high, that Micah says, hey, it's going to be okay, Israel. And this is where it just gets weird. Because from Bethlehem, a ruler who's going to come is going to come, and he's going to right all the wrongs. Now, I want you to catch the shock of the verse as we're orienting ourselves to this particular text. You would expect a ruler to come from like a place of power and prominence, but not somewhere like Bethlehem. I mean, Bethlehem doesn't have that great of a track record. It had David, which was cool, but that was a scandal in the first place because David was this runt of a guy that nobody ever expected to be a king. I mean, it was the exception, not the rule, that a ruler would come from Bethlehem. If anywhere, a ruler would come from a a major population center, somewhere that's well-respected. I mean, hey, Jerusalem is the capital. Wouldn't that be an ideal place? But in this particular instance, it's prophesied that, hey, uh, you will suffer some, but there will be some full and final deliverance, but it's going to come from a place that you least expect. It says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah. A clan was like an organized fighting force within the country. And here's the interesting thing about this, folks. They didn't even have enough people to put together a militia. Now, I I want you to think about it this way. Uh, For those of us who grew up in small towns, I grew up in a little town called Belvoir. If the French ever pronounced it, I assumed that they would call it Belvoir. There were about 600 people that lived in this particular place. And guess what? We had a volunteer fire department. We had enough people to have a fire department. It takes a certain number to have that. They don't have enough people to pull together a fire department. They don't even, like, register on the map. Like, when you're doing the census, Bethlehem isn't showing up. It's not the kind of place that you would expect a ruler to come from, but God says, expect it. I'm going to work in a countercultural way to provide a deliverance that you cannot forecast. And then the rest of the text is going to expand upon the effects of this unlikely ruler for God's people. So, It's a prophecy of assurance, a prophecy that addresses hopes and fears, hopes and fears of all the years, frankly. And you'll see the effects of this unlikely ruler unfold through these few verses. Basically, we're going to see that he'll bring about reunion, verse 3. That's one of the things that this unlikely ruler will bring. Another is satisfaction, verses 4 to 5, and then domination, verses 5 and 6. So notice these benefits that come from uh, Bethlehem. Firstly, this unlikely ruler uh, will bring out, I mean, bring about reunion. Now, the prophecy is interesting because it says that there is one who is coming uh, from this Bethlehem place that's too small to even be registered as a clan, 
And notice the second half of verse 2. From you shall come forth for me, for me, this is for God, this is for His glory, one who is to be ruler in Israel. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a leader. And then notice this, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now, this particular phrase intrigues many of us, and friends, I think we would do well to be intellectually honest here. It would be easy to say, oh, here's proof positive that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and that He existed from eternity past, and that is true, and the New Testament is going to make that very clear, but be fair with this text, especially if you're ever talking to a Jewish individual. Uh, That is not how the first century, I mean, that original audience, excuse me, would have understood it. They would have thought that this is a guy that's coming from way back. He has a heritage that is notable, one that connects back to a better time in Israel's history because, frankly, the kings of late in Israel and Judah had been somewhat of an embarrassment. And what this is actually prophesying is that this ruler is going to come back from something way back, like closer to the roots. It reminds you of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, by the way, who was a contemporary of Micah who said that there would come forth from the stump of Jesse a a branch. Basically, the Davidic line that you think of would be cut down at some point, but a new one would come and grow from it. In a similar way, he's appealing back to this fresh start for the Davidic line because 2 Samuel 7 prophesied that David would have a son who would dominate that he would rule and that nobody would ever be able to challenge his rule and that he would rule forever, and they had not seen that guy yet. They thought David would be that, but he never turned out that way. Solomon had a strong start, uh, but then he lost his way. His sons get in charge, and what happens? There's a civil war, and then the kingdom is fractured, and there's never a time like there was with David, and they kept expecting someone to be better than David. And yet even here it's saying, all right, I want you to think of a ruler who's going to come from Bethlehem. Hey, there's good stock there at least. David came from there, but he's going to be of old. He's going to be of that line that we expected. He's going to have uh, this vintage pedigree, if you will, and he is going to bring about some significant changes. The first one that he will bring about, verse 3, seems odd to us. Look at it there in your text. Tell me if it causes you to have the warm fuzzies. Uh, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Uh, At first glance, you're looking at that thinking, uh, whoop-de-doo. Well, uh, there's something about a woman having labor, and then there's some guys coming back to the nation of Israel. Awesome Christmas present. I am really excited about this one. But within context, though, this makes a lot of sense. See, you need to understand that when he says that he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, this birth analogy, thinking about a woman who is pregnant and experiencing these pains and contractions, is an analogy that was used in just the earlier chapter. Just look up a few verses into chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is what he says to the people of God. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, and you shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued, and there the Lord will redeem your hand from the enemies. 
Uh, friends, the, the prophecy of a woman who is just struggling through the pains of labor is what God had already depicted as the suffering that they would inevitably experience at the hands of foreign rulers. He's saying, Israel, be ready for something. You still will suffer. You will not escape this pain. Babylon will still come upon you. You will still feel the effects of Assyrian invasion. They would also at some point experience persecution at the hands of Persia and then Rome. And he's telling them, there will be a time, even though this ruler will come, get it, he's coming, but he will still let you feel the effects of your sin, O Israel. Now, this is very important for all of us who are in Christ in the realm of apologetics because there's a sense in which people would naturally expect that if the ruler came, all should be happy and well. And yet it is prophesied that even though he does come, he still will allow his people to experience some inevitable pains to a greater pleasure. Obviously, I know nothing, zero, nada, of labor pains experientially. But I've seen them <laughs> I've seen them multiple times, and they're real, <laughs> but they lead to something better. The prophecy is even showing that the pain itself is actually pointing to a more pleasurable end, particularly a more pleasurable end that only this ruler could bring about. What is it? The text says, that when she who is in labor is given birth, verse 3, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What, what, what's the big deal about that? Well, friends, in this particular passage, the nation of Israel, which was more like one extended family, think less politics, think more family reunion. You know, they're all of the same lineage and line, and they were brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. It was one big extended family. America may be a melting pot of cultures, but Israel was not. It was one solid line of people. And over the years, because of military domination, people had been carted off. They had been slain. Uh, their, their, their tribes had been fractured. By this point, Assyria has already taken away the northern ten tribes. There's only two left, and now they're surrounded. I mean, there's all kinds of decimation. I mean, some of you at this time of year, you know, kind of lament the fact that you've lost loved ones or that your kids have moved on and they live somewhere else right now. I mean, just imagine that pain and then multiply it by about a thousand. I mean, they were promised to be this one country that would happily represent God forever, and they had been decimated. And it's saying, the ruler will come and he will bring about, and here's the word that I gave you earlier, a reunion. He will cause it to happen that all of the people of God, the remnant that has been separated, isolated, exiled, even eliminated, will one day be reunited under his rule. Notice that the text says that the kings or the rulers' brothers will be reunited to the people of Israel or to the people of God. But friends, uh, this ruler will only unite those and reconcile those together who are related to him, those who are united to him. This text is pointing to a day where everyone who has a real relationship with God's chosen ruler and Messiah 
will once more be together in the same place, enjoying the blessedness of His rule. I think this is a good thing for us to remember as there are some temporal and eternal legs to this particular promise. Temporally, indeed, there are indications here that, um, that, that there is a, a Jewish remnant who will one day be uh, saved, as Roman, Romans 11 speaks to, and reconciled to the people of God, as Ephesians 2 actually talks about in verses 11 through 22. We already see a bit of this reunion as Jew and Gentile are united to one another in the church, and it is a blessed thing. And we can expect one day that, that God's chosen people will also be reunited in Christ in some full and final revival that we don't fully understand. But there's also an eternal aspect to this where he's saying that, look, this fear of separation that you all ultimately experience will be relieved through the rule of this chosen one from Bethlehem. He will fix that which is broken. It is just an inevitable thing that, that here and now in this season of life, we feel the pain and the frustration of those who have parted from us. And yet it is this very text that actually reminds us that there is coming a day when all is reconciled and fixed for all those who are related in Him. I, um, I was blown away a few years ago when uh, I was into this season of watching really old movies. And I was watching this uh, Judy Garland movie, uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. And I was thinking, you know, like, this is not a Christmas movie. And then in the middle of the movie, Garland breaks out, have yourself a merry little Christmas. It blew my mind. It was just like, it, it didn't belong here. This is a Christmas song. It's not a Meet Me in St. Louis song. And yet what's fascinating is as I researched that, that interesting history of those kind of haunting lines, we sing it as something that's very happy and celebratory, but in fact, the original writers wrote it to mourn the parting of individuals. I, I don't have the exact words, but I saw the original words that the composers tried to pass on, and uh, Garland herself struck the words out and said, no, I'm not singing that, it's too sad. <laughs> but even, sorry, one more little geeky uh, pop note here. Even Garland's version got improved by Sinatra. Uh, she talked about in her lines that we would be separated if the fates align, and uh, Sinatra thought that was too sad, so he added, well, uh, hang, a high, uh, hang a star upon the highest bow, whatever that means. <laughs> but the point was, people were separated at Christmas. Yeah, try to have yourself a merry little Christmas, but we're not with one another. And the truth is, we all do try to have Merry Christmas, Merry Celebrations of Christ. And there are some people who aren't there that should be there, so we think. There have been inevitable partings, some of them relational in time, some of them seeming more permanent through death. And you know what this ruler promises to those who suffer acutely in these ways at this time of the year? This one from Bethlehem, he's coming to bring about a permanent reunion for all who are related in him. Does uh, the blessing from Bethlehem relieve hopes and fears of all the years? Well, at least this one. There's the blessing of reunion, friends, that was affected as Christ entered into this world to remedy that problem that would ultimately separate us all. 
He would absorb sin and then the wrath of God for sin, fully paying it finally. And for all who believe in him, they will experience this peace and this forgiveness and this reconciliation with God and his son. And through that, reconciliation with one another. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 to 22 is about that very thing. Y'all read verses 1 through 10 and you're thinking, yes, we're saved by grace through faith. Awesome. But keep reading the verses and it says, and also, and also because of the same faith in Christ, you will be united together in Christ. It isn't just about the individual, it's about the interpersonal, and Jesus himself secures an ultimate reunion and he accomplished it through his birth in Bethlehem of all places. But there's another thing that the rule of this one from Bethlehem brings about. It isn't just a reunion, but he also brings about satisfaction. Look at verses 4 and 5. This is amazing. It says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. I love that. He promises here peace, and he presents himself in verse 4 as, as a shepherd. It says he'll stand, which is basically a, a Hebrew term for being installed officially into a post. And think of it like um, a presidential inauguration. Uh, someone is officially installed. He's saying that the ruler will be officially installed as a ruler, and he will shepherd his flock. Now, when you hear the word shepherd flock, uh, you probably think of like a Christmas pageant, you know, with the little kids dressed cute and a crook and, you know, disheveled costumes and all that type of thing, uh, or like actual shepherds. But most of us have never seen shepherds, so we naturally think of the Christmas pageant. <laughs> but the truth is, the shepherding metaphor is used throughout the Old Testament as a picture of perfect rule. Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I won't lack anything. The right kind of ruler, friends, would be the one who uses his authority in such a way that he secures the well-being of the sheep. That's what a king was supposed to be. There's this hymn that we sing sometimes here, the king of love, my shepherd is. God's kingly rule and his shepherding capacity are one and the same. Authority is to be exercised for the well-being of those who are being overseen. That's the way it's supposed to work. And he's saying, he will come, he will rule, he will be officially installed, he will shepherd his flock, and notice his divine might and right. He'll do it in the strength of the Lord. This coming ruler would be empowered by God himself, by Yahweh himself. That is the might, that is the capacity. But notice the right. It says that he will do it in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Uh, the word majesty is the Hebrew word for the highest point. He will have the highest authority and credibility to do whatever it is he needs to do. I don't know about you, but I get personally frustrated if I'm entrusted with something and I don't have the ability to do it or the authority to do it. I won't give examples because the sermon would be too long, but I have many. This ruler is going to come in and he will have all authority and he will have all ability to secure the well-being of his sheep. And that indeed was the divine Lord who was born in Bethlehem so many years ago. It says that they, his people, shall dwell secure. And in fact, he'll be so great 
He'll, like, he'll be such an effective shepherd leader that he shall be great to the ends of the earth. People are going to hear about how awesome he is. How many of you in here are a manager or a boss or a leader or a president or an executive of some kind? Raise your hand. If you're a mom, you need to raise your hand too. <laughs> wow, only 10 of you. Cool. I thought there would be more. No, I know that there's more than that. The truth is that all of us who have ever experienced this type of, of leadership um, pressure before uh, know what it's like to get negative press. You know, the, the first time you do something wrong, all of a sudden it makes its way out to 10 people, and you do something right, and somebody may tell one person if they tell anyone at all. It's an interesting anomaly. This ruler is so effective that the whole world hears of how great his rule is. He takes care of his people so well that his name is spread through the world for his effective shepherding. That's how amazing it is. I mean, this is a blessed promise. And then it summarizes it all with this line, and please note the grammar. Verse 6, or verse 5, excuse me, right at the, the beginning. And he shall be their peace. He is their peace. He doesn't just give them peace. He is their peace. Can I ask you, do, do you know the rule and the reign of this great shepherd who is Jesus? Do you know what it's like to be under his care, under his charge? I mean, to the degree that you would be able to say, that He is my peace. We do uh, use a little tool around here that we, we found a while back that's kind of helpful. I've referenced it before. We'll ask somebody how they're doing and then say, what's your peace score? And then we tell them to analyze their life in five different realms. And it makes for a good conversation. It just makes for bad theology. So the way the conversation goes down, if you want to ask somebody, say on a scale of one to five, how are you doing in, in these areas? Here they are. Uh, purpose, people, place. Oh, y'all are taking notes. I, <laughs> oh, sure. Purpose, people, place, physical well-being, physical health, and then provision. You know, normally, it's a, think about it. Those five areas, when you're like feeling stressed, it's normally one of those five things. You're like, man, if I just knew what I was doing with my life, I would be at peace. If I was getting along with my family members right now, all would be well. You know, if, if there was actually enough paycheck to last me to the end of the month, I'd be fine. If I didn't have to, like, use the word doctor as a verb, I'd be great. You know, like, those kinds of things, like, come to, come to people's mind. And, and what we inevitably think, though, is those are my peace. And yet, this shepherd has set up the relationship in such a way that he says, no, I will be their peace. 
They could seem aimless and purposeless. Job satisfaction could be at a zero. Uh, They could live in one of the worst communities in the world. They could not have a dime to their name. Uh, Maybe they are in just flaming relationships, especially with non-Christians around them, and they're also sick all the time. And yet, that person who is under the rule of Christ should authentically be able to attest Jesus is my peace. This is what Paul quotes in Ephesians 2. Again, Paul references this passage. He says, he is our peace. He is our shalom. And I would leave you with that word because sometimes you think of peace in English as uh, the absence of conflict. Uh, But the Jewish understanding of shalom is more faceted than that. It actually deals with wholeness, completeness. I like the English word satisfaction. You know what that means, to be satisfied. It doesn't mean that everything's perfect everywhere. It just means things are good in every area. I have what I need. Jesus says that he will be the one who will come and secure the satisfaction of his people And friends, we know this to be true. You may look around and say, well, it doesn't sound like to me that he has yet extended his rule and reign to the entire world. I don't hear everybody talking about how great of a king Jesus is, but friends, uh, the fame of his name is indeed spreading. If you think about the fact uh, that what Jesus uh, started in the first century A.D., uh, it was actually just like a ragtag group of like 70 to 400 individuals, And now there are at least a billion people who claim to know him in that way. And again, I would question the numbers, but the point is the growth is undeniable. I think that his name is beginning to be known around the world for its great rule. And there is coming a full final climactic day in which he just says, okay, gloves are off. Let me just go ahead and let everybody know I am the ruler you will be looking for or that you were looking for. And some will confess his lordship through forced subjugation, and some will have done it already through voluntary appreciation and faith, but all will ultimately confess that Jesus is Lord. And because of that, they who are his people will know perfect peace. See, think of the peace score again. You can have purpose, and you can have place, and you can have provision, and you can have uh, personal relationships, and you can have physical health, but still lack peace. I don't even want to quote statistics on suicide uh, for people who are in the upper class, but frankly, friends, you know the facts. It's undeniable. Even those who seem to have it all have nothing apart from Christ. And those who have nothing in Christ have it all. Hopes and fears of all the years Met in thee tonight, really, from Bethlehem? Well, it sounds like that this ruler from Bethlehem, as unexpected as he may be, will bring about uh, the, the reunion of his people. It sounds like that he will bring about the satisfaction of his people. The text also points to one more thing, and I'll be quick here. It says that he'll also bring about, and this is the best word I can think of that summarizes this truth well, the domination of his people. Domination. This is a positive. Look at the verse and you can see why I use it. 
Um, I don't know how your Bible has it broken up, but mine in verse 5 has, and he shall be their peace, connected to the verses before it. And then there's, I have a space, and then the next line, because the thought is different, okay? So I know sometimes we think that the verses are inspired. They're not. So the next line, when the Assyrian comes into our land, there's a new thought here. Here's another effect of God's chosen ruler from Bethlehem. And this is what it says of him. When the Assyrian comes into our land, now the prophet is speaking first person plural, talking about the group, the people of God in Israel. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Now, let's let's just pause here for a second because I'll admit, when I was studying this, it confused me a little bit too. I don't know what to be excited about with seven shepherds in particular versus eight, you know, leaders of men. Like, what is this about? The, the point is that they would experience uh, invasion for sure and threats. Assyria was the epitome of threat in that time. It's kind of like, I think of it this way. If you were to talk to any red-blooded American in the 1980s, who was the major threat? It was Russia. <laughs> everything was about Russia. Even sermons, everything was about Russia. To my Russian friends in the congregation, I'm glad it's no longer the case. Americans were just paranoid in those days, and rightfully so in some ways. But the point is that that was kind of the unique enemy of the time. In many ways, Assyria, for the nation of Israel, in this time and in this place, like, that was the unique enemy. It actually became like a placeholder for any major threat that they would ever experience. You see this over and over again. They'll call out Assyria, and Assyria is not even around anymore because there was mental memory of them having threatened them so acutely. And so here, the prophet is actually saying, like, Assyria, when they come into our land, anytime we experience threat in the future as the people of God under the rule of this this one from Bethlehem, when he comes into our land and treads in our palaces, when he tries to invade even the nicer homes that we have in our land, then we will raise against him, notice this, under the leadership of this one ruler, we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Why seven? Why eight? Why shepherds? Why princes of men? Uh, Friends, you know this uh, if you study the Old Testament at all. Uh, Seven is what? The number of completion, wholeness. It just like we like good round numbers here in the United States. You talk about one to 100, they liked one to seven. (laughs) Seven was the epitome, it was the end. There was a seven day week, and that was just like we're going to, by saying having seven shepherds, we're going to have underneath the rule of this great shepherd other rulers, and we're going to have all the leaders that we need. This, uh, this coming ruler will work through other individuals, which speaks to, by the way, a ton of New Testament eschatological promise, which points to God using other individuals to rule and reign under him. Another story, another time. Point is, they'll have enough leadership. And then there's the, the eight. What about the eight? I like this. It took me a long time to figure this out, so I'm really happy <laughs> that we're somewhere. Uh, eight Eight leaders of men. The word leaders of men could also be translated sheiks. These are the the ones who were like military rulers in Eastern contexts. To say, though, that there would be seven shepherds and eight shepherds of men, or eight leaders of men, is actually to say, we'll have more than enough. Seven, we have everything we need. Eight, we've got extra. We've got abundance. Uh, We kind of do some similar things in English. I, um, I had a a, a pretty significant parenting fail this week, and um, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. At one point, I was uh, 
immensely frustrated with one of my children because uh, they had left some food out on the floor of all pla- I have no idea why it was on the floor. Still don't know. But anyway, food was on the floor. And again, less than stellar parenting here. I'm not commending this practice. But in frustration, I said, if you don't clean this out of the floor, I'm going to give you a spanking and a half. Now, again, fail. Shouldn't have said it. But you know what the crazy thing was? The child did not ask me what a spanking and a half meant. <laughs> I'm going to be careful not to give away the gender. But this particular child got the fact that it's not just going to be discipline, but it's going to be more than enough discipline to cover this very infraction. Again, bad parenting moves, shouldn't have done it. But the point is, and a half, you're like, okay, yeah, I get what you're talking about. By saying we're going to have seven shepherds and eight sheiks, he's saying, look, we're going to have more than we need. We are going to dominate Assyria to the degree, keep looking at the text here, this will blow your mind, that even when they attack, look at verse 6, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. They're not just going to be confined to Israel, but now they're going to encroach into enemy territory, and they're going to exercise domination over the very land that threatened them. And by the way, they're going to shepherd them with a sword, not with a staff, not with a crook, but with a sword. They will dominate all threats. It says, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, further evidence, by the way, because Nimrod was a ruler in Babylon, like further evidence, by the way, that Assyria is just a placeholder for any enemy that the people would ever experience. He's basically saying they will dominate, and it says, notice this, they have a role in this, but it gets back to the first person singular, the ruler, the one from Bethlehem, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The people of God will experience ongoing threat, but in the end, they will dominate. They will not just defend, they will dominate any threat presented against them. And friends, this promise has already and not yet aspects. There is a sense in which Christ rules and reigns over his church today. And Matthew 16, 18 says that even the gates of hell, the strategy center of hell itself, cannot prevail against it. That's good news. What ultimately to us seems like defeat, especially in the cultural wars around us or things that would go on in China, for example, that would affect Christians or laws in Russia, for example, that would prohibit people from sharing the gospel or things that have been passed down by our Supreme Court in recent days. Like, are these things really losses? Did did somehow King Jesus lose? No, this is actually within the realm of his rule his working. His purposes are being accomplished. His gospel is being advanced. You remember that line from uh, Tertullian, that Greek father from long, long ago, where he says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Some of the best work ever done for the gospel is done in the hardest of times. That's why Paul says we are more than conquerors in Christ. We don't just conquer, but even when the weapons of the enemy are used against us, we still flourish and prosper. There is an already aspect to this where nothing will dominate the people of God. His plans and His purposes are being accomplished. I hope, friends, that even a text like this can lower your blood pressure at Christmas. And maybe you could watch a little less Fox News as well. (laughs) King Jesus is still on the throne. He's still ruling. He's still reigning. And frankly, friends, but there will come a day when He fully and finally dominates and all this stuff that you sent so much angst over, rightfully so, 
whether it be the sexual revolution or whether it be the persecution of saints in places unknown, it will end. You will fully, finally see a government, a rule, a reign that you can rejoice in. And it comes with the return of this ruler from Bethlehem. Phase one, he conquered when he rose again from the dead and overcame the, the, the powers of hell itself. The power of sin has been broken for all those in Christ, and its practical import bears itself out in our lives as we reflect his rule in the way that we live, but it will one day be fully and perfectly reflected in society as well. The unlikely ruler will bring about reunion, satisfaction, and domination. And so we come back to old little town. Is it, uh, is it sentimental or is it scriptural? Is this really something we could be excited about? It starts off rather uh, syrupy for sure. But I'll let you know a little word of the author and then we're going to reflect on the text. This hymn was written by uh, Philip Brooks. He was uh, a trained uh, pastor uh, from Harvard University. Now, most of you hear that and you think, oh man, he must have been a flaming liberal. But Harvard, back in the 1860s, was actually a faithful institution for the training of pastors for the gospel. Few people realize that. So he was trained, and he was a, a pastor and a leader in the church. He wasn't just looking to write songs. He was looking to teach doctrine. And what's fascinating is that um, I think it was like 1863, something like that. Oh, uh, yeah, here it is. 18, uh, 1866, he goes and tours the Holy Land. And he actually goes to a church service in Bethlehem. And as he's meditating on the Scriptures and he's looking at the insignificance of this little town, he's stunned by the amazing way in which God will take such small things to accomplish such great purposes. And so he pins these words and he brings them back to a Sunday school class that he's teaching and he just kind of like does it as a printout and it gets distributed. And eventually someone finds it and makes it the song it is today. But the point is, he wasn't like trying to write a Christmas song. Those always fail. <laughs> what he was trying to do was just teach people about how our amazing God works in insignificant ways, seemingly insignificant ways to accomplish his significant purposes. And now reflect on the lines of the song. Look at the first verse. In it he says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Why is it that the hopes and fears of all the years have been met through that birth in Bethlehem? Because this was the eternal light. This is the one that was promised. He's actually pointing them to the fact that God came in that night. He invaded the natural order. Now, his theology gets even better in verse 2. Check it out. Uh, For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above, while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. Now, with that, he's, he's referring to the angels above or looking in on this event that's happening as Christ is born 
And O morning stars, that's a reference to the angels, O morning stars together proclaim the holy birth and praises sing to God the King and peace to all the earth. Friends, he wasn't just born a baby, he was born a ruler. That's never happened. You're born a prince, you're born a princess, you're not born a king, it takes time. And yet this one was born a ruler. The, the, the biggest problem and, and danger, this is a danger, like I'm waving the flag here, a danger for you just diving into a purely sentimental Christmas is to, to keep Jesus isolated to this little baby figurine on your shelf and think, he's so cute. He's a king. He rules. He reigns. He dominates. He is a boss. He deserves your allegiance, not just your affection. And so, this even him reminds us, this is God. This is king. He is a ruler. But there's more. The second, third verse, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Pay attention. Do you see this? Silently. It was insignificant. It, it, it was this, this gift was given in this, this place without much pomp, without much circumstance. And so, in a similar way, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. Like, you, you can't see it. You don't know immediately when someone is converted, when they switch allegiance from self to Christ, when they profess faith in Him. It just seems so invisible. But notice this, no ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. You know why God works in such seemingly insignificant ways to accomplish his significant purposes? To keep you and me humble. David was the runt of the litter so that David wouldn't get the glory. The ruler would be born in Bethlehem so Bethlehem wouldn't get the glory. Jesus would accomplish salvation through a shameful crucifixion on the cross so that no one would get the glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 makes it clear that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. He has this penchant for doing the small and the seemingly insignificant and the paltry to accomplish his great designs and purposes. And so also no one will ever merit through their own accomplishment, through their own uh, like namesake, through their own reputation, the, the favor and the righteousness that can come only through Christ. It happens in this insignificant way, something as simple, so simple that a child could do it, and it is simply a turning to Christ in faith to believe in Him. It isn't about how much money you gave to the church last year. It isn't about how many great things that you have accomplished in your life. It isn't about the impact that you're able to have philanthropically. It, this is merely a, a humble reception. You contribute absolutely nothing. And that's why I would warn you, friends, I warn you of any church or religious institution that would entice you into thinking that you can at least make a little bit of a contribution. If you enact this sacrament, you can receive a little bit of grace. If you confess to this priest, if you light this candle, if you undergo this baptismal rite, Paul calls that damnable. Be careful, friends. The way to enter into the benefits that Christ offers is humble, it is lowly, it is unimpressive as Bethlehem itself. It is simply believing in Jesus. 
And then the final verse. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. Notice that he's, he's praying for continued work of this ruler in his life, for him to come. And notice this, we hear the Christmas angels, their great glad tidings tell, oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. There still is an expression of longing that we know that Christ has not yet returned to this earth physically and finally to reign. Oh, God, come. Lord Jesus, come quickly. The hopes and fears of all the years began to be met in Bethlehem that night, but will ultimately be met when He returns and finishes what He started. Friends, we should be looking for His return in faith. You know, I, I've got to admit a theological struggle that I have. When I come to the minor prophets, some of you have commented like, oh, wow, this has been neat to go through the prophets. This is really hard. You know, frankly, it is hard. And I was very intimidated in even engaging in this. And you know what my biggest struggle is with the prophets? It's the already versus the not yet. I struggle with that. Because there's some stuff in here that just seems so clear. It's like, man, that can only apply to like some eschatological intervention of God in the nation of Israel at some point someday. It's the only way that I can read it and it make any sense. But then there are other times where I'm like, but Christ already did this. He already accomplished that. And I'm just acknowledging, like every week, I feel every week, and I feel it acutely here in Micah 5, and uh, frankly, even yesterday, trying to get junk done in my yard, I'm thinking about this like, all right, do we lean in on the already or the not yet? How am I being faithful to the text? You know what it is, friends, it's both. There are already aspects to the rule and reign of Christ where he offers a peace that passes all understanding, and I would encourage anybody who lacks said peace to find it in Christ by repenting of their sin and relying upon him alone. That is a fact. That is something that you can enjoy today. But let me be real. It's a broken world out there. And the full weight of his reign has yet to be felt. But it will be but it will be. And so just as they anticipated Christ, I mean, coming, so do we. Knowing that the, that the plan's already been set in motion, but its consummation is coming soon. So if things seem kind of bleak this Christmas, if it seems like hopes and fears kind of still prevail, yeah, they do. But they will be satisfied on account of what God accomplished in sending His Son to that obscure village called Bethlehem. So I'd have us close our service this way. Let's review by singing the simple but scriptural song, A Little Town. And then we're going to sing one more. If O Little Town of Bethlehem is the review, the final song that we sing today, Behold Our God, a, a song that celebrates God's rule and reign, will be our song of rejoicing. So a song of review, a song of rejoicing, and if you have questions about what it means to enjoy this reconciled relationship with this ruler who is Jesus, talk to a pastor on the way out, talk to a church member, we'd be happy to serve you. But now we want to honor our Lord in song. I'll ask the musicians, if they will, to go ahead and come forward. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, we rejoice in Christ and what he's accomplished on our behalf, or how befuddling that you would send 
your son to enter into our world to rule in a town as obscure as Bethlehem. But indeed, it's the way that you work. So, we submit ourselves to your great plans and or we trust you for the, 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 the hopes and fears that have already been uh, solved in the rule of Christ, uh, his death and his resurrection. But we look in hope for his return, for those hopes and fears to be fully met in days still to come. Would help us to rejoice in you faithfully now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.